This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Good evening. A week and a half from uh, Pesach. Of course, we're going to talk about Pesach tonight. I'd like to say hello to everyone in Beis Gabriel. Thank you for coming much to Shabbos. Coming this much to Shabbos. Um, even though you have so much stuff to clean, but you're coming out to learn. It helps you clean your inside of your neshama. So, you got to clean your house, but you also got to clean the inside of your neshama. Good. Anyway, I have the, probably the most amazing story I've ever said in my life, to me. I've said a lot of stories in my life. And I heard a story from my friend Usher Langzam on Thursday night. And I wish him hope to say that story today. If I do forget to say the story before I end, just scream out. Two prisoners in a jail. What? Better than Monticello. Better than Monticello. Better than Monticello. It's whatever. It's a different kind of story, but it's amazing. It's, it's crazy. Okay, anyway. I hope to get to that uh, towards the end of the year. Okay. So, I want to go back before I start on Pesach. I want to talk a little bit about last week's Pasha, which is connected to this week's Pasha, because Pasha's Tazria last week starts off with talking about having a baby, but that's very short. That's eight psukim. And the rest of Pasha's Tazria, I'm sure you all in Shul and you all heard it, the rest of Pasha's Tazria talks about Saras. Saras is a disease called leprosy. Well, no, it's not leprosy, I'm sorry. Leprosy is a physical disease. And it's pretty, very catchy. And they used to have leper colonies where they would take these people and it's, uh, you take an encyclopedia and you look at a leper, you'll see it's like these terrible boils and white skin, flaky skin, and the limb falls off, whatever it is. But that's the physical malady of leprosy. Saras is not leprosy. We translated that because that's the closest thing. It's a skin disease that turns white. Your skin turns white. But saras actually is not a physical disease. Saras is a spiritual disease. So when a person gets saras or his house gets saras or his clothing gets saras, the, the fixing of it is not by taking medicine or putting on cream or going to the doctor. You go to the Kohen. Because the Kohen at that time, the Kohen's job was to be very close to Hashem and work in the Mishkan and work in the base of Mikdash. So you got, to fix the spiritual malady, the spiritual disease, you need like a, a spiritual specialist. And the Kohen in those days was a spiritual specialist. So, he, and he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. The person did Chuba, he just went out to look at it, said, Tomei Tahar, but he didn't, he didn't like chant or, you know, do anything for the person. And the person had to bring a carbon. So it was really, it, it was really the person. And of course, Saras, we know, started on a person's house with a warning to stop saying Lashon Hara. And the Kohen would have to go into the house and check it. And if it was Tame, they had to take everything. He wouldn't say it's interesting. Um, in the halachas, just to show you how God and the Torah, which is God's Torah, is very, um, sensitive to a person's belongings, to a person himself, because the Kohen, they would, if he thought it was Saras, they would take everything out of the house first, right? And then he would make the house Tameh. Because if he made the house Tameh and, and things were in the house, everything would become Tameh. So before he was made sure that it was Saras and not Saras, they would take everything out of the house. You know, of course, except the television and the, and the computer, because that was Tameh anyway, so they might as well leave it in the house. But everything else they took out of the house. So, because the, the Kohen was very sensitive to the person's property. Now, if the guy did not get a hint that his, that he was losing his, um, house and the things, in other words, his money, Hashem first warns us with our money. Our business goes bad. It's hard to find a job. Hashem is trying to tell us, you're not doing the right thing. If we don't get a lesson from that, then the, the Tsaras would come out on his clothing. Well, then he'd have a white spot on his clothing, this, this type of fungus growing, whatever. And if he still didn't get Right? That a God get, he, first Hashem got close to your body by going, putting it in your clothing. He still didn't get the message. Then the person himself got sick. 
And that's in a person's life also. It's first your house, things that, you know, properties and things that are, are far away from you, then things that are very close to you, and then you yourself. Now, the Pasuk says the following. In the, in the beginning of Tazria, whoever wants to look at it, it's in Pasuk Gimel, Perek Yud Gimel. It says the following. And the Koyen would see the malady, would see the nega, the saras. In the skin of the meat, in, in, in your skin. And the hair in that blotch of white turned white. And when you look at it, it looks three-dimensional. It looks like that this disease is deep in your skin. That's how it looks. Nega terasu, that's saras. And then the Pasuk ends. And the Kayan will see it, and he'll make it Tame. So the question is, why does it say it twice? The Pasuk starts off. And the Kayan will see the disease. And then the Pasuk ends. And the Kayan will see the disease. And he'll make it Tame. He already saw it. Beginning of the Pasuk starts off that he saw the Nega. Why does it have to say he saw the Nega twice? And the answer is, which is so important in life for rabbis, rabbeim, any Jew in the world to learn, and especially the Kayen, that before you make a Jew Tomei, before you say that this Jew is no good, this kid is no good, he's a bum, he's at risk, he's on the street, he's not one of us, before anyone can make such a comment, you have to look twice. It's not good enough to look at another Jew and say, oh, look, this guy, he's a bum, he's no good. Says the Torah, even the Kayen, you looked, you saw, it's white, the skin is white, the hair is white, it's three-dimensional, right? So say it's Tameh. Says the Torah, look again. Before you make a Jew Tameh, before you make a negative statement about a Jew, you got to look twice. Because you can't make another Jew Tameh Unless you really check into an out, and not only to look at the person, but to look at his situation. What do I mean to look at his situation? Listen carefully. That it says in halacha that if this guy has saras and he and the client sees it's real saras, there's nothing to talk about. But he's in his sheva brachas. He just got married, and he gets up the next morning. He's oh my god, look what's on my hand. Oh, uh, run to the client. Client takes a look at it. Goes oh boy, it's saras. And if I'm going to say it's saras. He's going to be Tomei. Tomei, you have to go outside of where all the Jews were, which means that he won't be with his wife for the next, with his new married wife for the next seven days. Halacha is, Klein has to say Tahar. Even though he knows it's Tomei. Because he has to look at the situation of the person that comes to him. So not only does he have to look twice, but he has to know the situation that that person's in. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's true 100%. It happened last week to me with somebody. But I'm going to change maybe the gender and whatever of the person so that nobody will know who it is and the person, if she, you know, there goes that. But, <laughs> but if the person sees the, sees, the, sees the share, they shouldn't get insulted. Okay. Situation with a person 
who's had a very rough life. This person was born with a physical disease, which no one in this room I don't think could handle. Whatever it does to the person, it's it's painful, whatever. I'm not going to get into it. But a very, very hard physical disease. You look different. You feel different. It's. I never saw or heard of this disease. Okay? Now, this person, 21, 22-year-old person, comes from a very religious family and felt very guilty coming from that religious family that this person was on the internet, met a, met a boy, so now you know what this person is, I, I said it anyway already, so, met a boy and was talking to this boy. By the way, I just want you to know that, you know, I talk a lot about the internet and I talk a lot about my space and your space and his face and all this stuff and you just have to trust me, even though a lot of you don't believe what I'm saying, that I know what I'm talking about. There's a court case coming up with three guys that uh, may go away for a very long time because of some people they met on the internet and some things went down and those people claim certain things and they need letters from rabbis and they came to me today and they said we need you to sign a letter because they're going in front of a judge and this could put them away for a very long time. And it all came from the internet. These three boys, whatever, got connected to this whole thing and it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's a, it's really the net that the Yetzirah uses to catch the fish, which you know, which are which are the good neshamas. And then most of the people start off with it, you know, for not the wrong reasons, but you know, he's very very smart. He's very very smart. Anyway, so this young person who has parents that are very very from started talking to this boy, and 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 she was very embarrassed. How am I going to tell my parents this? So she came to me. I had met her earlier. We've been talking. She said, well, I need you to tell my parents. Because I, I just can't do it. Okay. So we called the meeting. I didn't tell them why. They came in from out of town, whatever it was, with their daughter. And they sat in front of me and a different person together with me and said, no, why are we here? I just didn't have the guts to tell them. Because I have this person sitting in front of me. She suffered enough. Now I need to, to tell her appearances. She's going to suffer more. And I'm like, I just wanted to tell you what a great daughter you have. They're like, you could have told us that on the phone, Rabbi. You know? And I'm like, well, I got to tell you something that she doesn't want to tell you. And so he, the father turned and said, well, why doesn't she tell me? What do I need you? I don't even know you. And I said, well, she doesn't want you to look at her differently. And, you know, you you hold her in high esteem, and uh, there's something i got to tell you that may change the way you look at her. I want to tell you what the father answered me, because I'm on the subject of looking twice. And the father turned to his daughter, and his, her mother was there, and they hugged her, and they cried, and I cried, and the other guy cried, and the box of tissue was going really fast, because cause this kid suffered. I mean, I'm beyond anything that anyone here can even understand, and myself included. And, and here I am, I told her, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to be the rat. Like, you know, like, I just wasn't comfortable. And he turns to her and he says the following. Unbelievable. He says, let me tell you something. He tells his daughter. He said, in the old days, before they were very sensitive to people's feelings, he says, so there's this guy walking in the street. He was a hunchback. 
you know, the hunchback bent over, you know, the back is out of shape, whatever it is. And he had a very bad limp. And he would walk down the street, hunchback, with his very bad limp. And all the kids would go screaming and throwing things, because they weren't sensitive, you know. Ha, look at the hunchback, look how ugly he is, look how he's limping. And everybody would turn around and look at this, you know, man and, and say like, yeah, wow, you know, wow, he limps and he's a hunchback and, you know, keep him away from my house, he scares my little kids. Right, you can imagine such a thing. He says, let me ask you something. He tells his daughter, listen to this, amazing. Sister says, let me ask you something. The same kids, the same scenario, it's a regular guy. And he's carrying huge boulder on his back. Up the mountain. They're having a race. Who's the strongest man in town? And each guy is trying to carry the biggest load on their back. A 100-pound pack, a 200-pound. This one guy, right, takes this huge boulder, weighs 200 pounds, puts it on his back, and starts climbing the mountain. Now, he's totally bent over because the thing is, is on his back, right? So he's bent over, looks like a hunchback, but he's got this huge boulder on his back. He's limping. He's schlepping his legs up the mountain. He says, what would all the kids be saying? Ha ha, look at that ugly man. Keep him away from my kids. Or, oh my goodness, look at, look at that champion. Look at that Olympic champion schlepping up the mountain with 300 pounds on his back. He's amazing. Let's get pictures of him. Let's advertise. Here, let's put him on the weedy box. Guy carrying 300 pounds. The champion, town's champion. Unbelievable. Turned to his daughter and he said, there's nothing this rabbi can tell me to make, you, to make us think that you're not our champion. What you have had on your back these 21 years, there's nothing that he could tell us that would make us think less of you. It doesn't matter. That's judging a person by what they're carrying on their back. And after that, I realized, Baruch Hashem, I don't have to tell him anything. Because at that point, I said to her, if you have a father that could say such a marshal, that could understand that because of what you're carrying through your life, there's nothing you could do that's going to make him think less, you don't need me to tell him anything. On your, on your way home, tell him whatever you want to tell him. And they started laughing, and they were crying, and I was crying, whatever it is, and they went home. And I realized, he told me this story last week, I realized that what he was telling me was exactly, exactly what, what was the halacha of a Mitzayra. That the Mitzayra could be Tomei. But if he, if his, if he's in a, in a position now that he's in the Sheva Brachas, you have to say Tahar. So how could one Jew ever, or a teacher, or a principal, or a rabbi, or a rebbe, or anybody, ever judge a kid? ever judge a Jewish person do you know what's going on in that kid's life do you know why that kid's limping spiritually do you know why he's not putting on tefillin do you know why he's angry do you know why he's failing do you know why he's not learning it's the Kayan's job to look twice it's the Kayan's job to find out what's going on in his life is he a chassan then even if he's tummy he's tar even if he has saras he's tar because he's a chassan. If he's a chassan, I can't say he's tamay. Just a, as an example. So we, are, we as, as, as Jews have to be so careful before we judge another Jew. You're not allowed to judge another Jew. And therefore, it says in Pirkei Avos, 
Don't judge another Jew until you're in his place. And anyone that's in this room that learned physics know that no two objects can occupy the same space. It's the first theory in physics that you learn. There's no two objects in the world that can occupy the same space. And don't think I'm so brilliant that I learned the whole physics. I just learned little things so that I look like I'm very smart. But no two things can occupy the same space. And therefore, what is the mission of saying? Don't judge your friend until you're in his place. Don't judge your friend because you'll never be in his place. Because no two people can be in the same place. And this is such a big lesson from the Kayin. You have to look twice or three times or four times. And you have to figure out a way to be able to say, this person is my champion because this person, whatever he's doing, hey, what he's got on his back, okay, is the reason that he's bent over, is the, is the reason that he doesn't th- see things clearly. That's Pasha's Tazria. This week's Pasha is Pasha's Mitzorah. It talks all about the Mitzorah, the same subject matter. But we have to be very, very careful how we judge somebody else. Halavai, everybody in Chinuch, everybody in, everyone involved with our children, and I'm not blaming anybody here, but Halavai, that everyone that deals with children, including parents, not just people in Chinuch, that before they judge their own children, they look twice, or three times, or four times. Doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want wrong, right, and get away with it. But to judge somebody... That's a different, that's a different situation. In other words, the consequence of doing something wrong is consequence. There's consequence, right? And there's punishment. I don't believe in, the Torah doesn't believe in punishment. What's the difference between consequence and punishment? If you tell your kid, 11 o'clock tonight, you better be home or I'm locking the door. And the kid comes home at 11.05 and the door's locked. That's not a punishment. That's a consequence. I told you the door's closing. You go running to the bank, right? That's happened to me all my life. They close at 3, you get there at 305, the guard stands there, have a nice day, and you bang, I need a minute, sorry. The consequence of coming to a bank that closes at 3, at 305, is the door's closed. The bank's not punishing you, not a punishment. Whoever comes at 305, we're going to punish. It's a consequence. So when we do things in life that are wrong, Hashem set consequences. You go in the middle of the road, the Jersey Turnpike, and you stand there, and a car hits you, you're dead. Not a punishment that you're dead. You're not being punished for standing in the road. It's a consequence of standing in the road. And it brings me to another point before we even get to Pesach, which is so important, which I would like to explain to all of you. There's a very high percentage of, of I think it's 80% of people who go into rehab who come back out and fall back again, relapse. 80% relapse. There's a place, the best place in California, it's very famous for all the movie stars. They're the best in the world. They say only 60% relapse. Now, that doesn't mean that if you ever did drugs, you're, you know, you'll be in the 20% mitzvah, Hashem, whatever you do. But I want to tell you something that, that I've been working on for a long time, and I managed to see that it's very true, and it's very important for everyone here, including myself. I'm talking to myself also. There's, there are lines on your hand, right? People go to palm readers to read the lines on your hand. The lines on your hand are, is your life. And a good palm reader doesn't have to have any kedusha could tell you where you've been, when you got married, what age you got married, when you made a lot of money, when you lost a lot of money. Because anyone who really knows how to read a hand, this side and this side, can pretty much tell you everything about your life. Why did Hashem do that? Why do we have lines in our hands 
and, and cows don't. Why do we have lines in our hand? Why do you do that? So, you know, I like to think. Fingerprints, lines. He didn't do this for no reason. You don't really need them. We don't use them. Let's go to a palm reader. What, do you, what, what does your lines help you? What do you need lines for, right? In the middle of your palm, you need lines, right? Put here in the middle of my palms, right? Till hair grows, my Rebbe used to say. Till hair grows in the palm, Wallerstein. You'll get 100 on your test. <laughs> so one day I came and I had hair on my palm. Okay, anyway. So, it's a different story. You know, the very famous story. You know the story. The very famous story in the Holocaust. Um, there was this boy who got burnt. And they had just started doing skin grafts. And they did a skin graft from his leg. And he had, he had gotten burnt on his palm. It's a very famous story. He had got burnt on his palm when he was young. He put his hand on an oven. And they did a skin graft from his leg and they put it on his palm. Anyway, the Nazis um, captured his sister. And he was still a young boy at the time, maybe 17, 18. This story's written. And I don't know how I got to this, but whatever. They, they were going to do very bad things to her and then kill her. So he ran to the commandant, the head Nazi, Gestapo, whatever it is, and he said, he begged for, he, he mamish begged, he said, take me instead of her, you, can, you know, don't do this, he said, you can't do this to my sister, whatever it is, and the Gestapo, the head of Gestapo said to him in German, when here grows on your palm, that's when I'm going to listen to a Jew. It's a true story. And what happened from the skin graft when he was much younger, in those days they didn't do it, you know, whatever, is that the skin that they took from his leg, his leg had hair on, grows hair. And he had hair growing in his palm. And it's an amazing story. And he went, and he said, yeah, until hair grows on my palm. And he put out his hand, and there was hair on his palm. And the commandant freaked out. <laughs> no, he thought that, that this guy is very powerful, whatever. He said, you know, here on your palm, and the kid puts his hand out, and there's hair in his palm. No one has hair in his palm, whatever it is. And it says that Imamish freaked out, and he called all the soldiers, and he said, you got to look at this. And they all looked at it, and they said, you and your sister. And they sent them somewhere, and they, they went, they, they, the Imamish stayed away from them. And these two guys, these two people, the sister and the brother, made it out of, made it out of the whole, out of, out of the war. Just, Hakadosh whatever, sends the refuah sometimes before the machla. When I first heard it, I said, yeah, right, you know. And then I saw it in a book written by a Holocaust survivor. It's a true story. Anyway, that has nothing to do with, 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 with what I'm talking about. So, so the, the question is with the lines. I have to tell you, and this is an important thing in life. The the sur merah and an tov. Sur merah means stay away from doing bad things. Now, a lot of us think that we can experiment with Sherman Aguiar. I can control myself, Rebbe, right? With marijuana, big deal, one joint a week. What's It's not the end of the world, Rebbe. It's not going to change. Cigarettes, I'm not going to die from this, come on, it's not the end of the world. Alcohol, I only drink on Shabbos, right? There's a lot of, no, there are guys that only drink on Shabbos, I have friends. I know I'm not an alcoholic, how do you know? Because I don't drink during the week, I only drink on Shabbos. So you're a Shabbos alcoholic, whatever, but okay, you know, I only drink on Shabbos. Now, I get this all the time, and again, I'm not saying one joint a year is a good or a bad thing, when a kid says, you know, what's the big deal? One pill, one Vicodin, you know, any of this stuff. Oh, so I go on the internet once in a while. What's the end of, what's not the end of the world? You understand? One Oxycontin, big deal. It loosens me up. You know, I don't have to tell you. Now I'm going to tell you a very big secret. A very scary secret. Everything you do in your life is a line on your hand. Why is there a line on your hand that somebody could read and tell you everything you did? Because Hashem wants to teach you that whatever you do in Shemayim, 
in your soul, you're writing a road map, like you have on your, you know, your whatever, navigation system. So, listen carefully, because this is very, very important. There's nothing to do with Pesach, but this is very, very important. <coughs> Take a guy who gambles. Who gambled? A long time ago, Rabbi Wallstein used to gamble. Atlantic City, Las Vegas. Not the end of the world. What's the big deal? Right? There's, there's two reasons you're not allowed to gamble. One is you're stealing. New Jersey says you're not. We're ready to play with you. You're going to lose anyway and help us pay for the soaps and the robes and the people that work. So we're not worried about you. So you're not stealing. The other one is you're destroying the world because you're not doing anything with your life. But I have a business. So I'm doing things with my life. So there's nothing wrong with it, right? So once in a while I gamble, Rebbe. I play poker once a year, twice a year, five times a year. What's so wrong with it? I'm going to tell you what's so wrong with it. In your neshama, when you do something wrong, you create, or you do something right, you create a road. Think for a second. You create a road. So this guy goes ahead, he smokes a joint. He smokes some marijuana. He creates a marijuana road. Right? On this road it says marijuana. Now, he realizes, ah, I can't do this. Uh, my marriage is going down the drain. I can't work. Uh, I'm not going to get a shidduch. Whatever it is, I'm doing tshuva. Rebbe gave a share on marijuana. Right? Rebbe gave a share on my space, your space, her space. I'm doing tshuva. No more marijuana. So what is he doing? He has a road in his soul that says gambling, marijuana, girls, whatever it is. And he's doing tshuva. So he puts up this huge sign on that road. Gambling road closed. Girls closed. Drinking closed. Whatever you're stopping. Closed. Nice big red cones with the red tape across the... A road that's closed. It's closed. And, Baruch Hashem, he doesn't go to that road. The road's closed in his neshama. But there's such a road in his soul. The road exists because he, op- he built that road. Now he stopped and it's closed. Why is there 80% relapse? Why is there 80%? Rehab is unbelievable. They detox you and they help you and there's AA and BA and ZA and all these things, right? And they're trying to help you. 80% relapse, why? And the answer is very simple. Because since that road is there, and that road is closed, so as long as you're in rehab, and as long as you're in AA, and as long as you're around everybody that's protective, and you're not going through pain, and you're not going through pressure, road's closed. But five years, six years, eight years, ten years down the road, and all of a sudden your business just went down, and someone in your family is very sick, and you're not feeling very well, and you're extremely depressed, where are you going? You've got to go inside. Where are you going? There's a road there called marijuana. And it's closed. But I'm depressed. So let me move the cones just this one time. Because the road's there. And I know just to get into the road, I just need to move the cones. I don't need to create a new road. So therefore, by starting a behavior that's new, when you're young, when you get older, that's the behavior you're going to go back to. And Baruch Hashem, I have not bet on anything except on how many guys are going to fall asleep in my share. That's, the, that's all I bet on, right? And I don't bet for money. That's between me and myself. Right? Baruch Hashem, 12 years. Nothing. But what happened if Chas Shalom, Rabbi Wallerstein lost his business lost everything, has no money whatsoever, 
is down in the dumps. They're calling him from everywhere. Your credit cards were closing you down. Just your payments were repossessing your car. We're throwing your kids out of yeshiva. There's no tuition. I have a road that says Atlantic City Resorts. And I know that I know how to play. And I know that in one sitting, I can walk off with a hundred grand. And I'm desperate. And I have no other way to make money. Guess what? I'm in Atlantic City. But another guy in this room who never touched a card, who never gambled in his life, he's not going to Atlantic City. He's never been there. He doesn't know he can make a hundred grand in one sitting. He doesn't think he could win. He's like, are you nuts? I have 10 cents left. I should lose that too. Because that road doesn't exist. If I get depressed, I'm not going to smoke a joint. You know why? Because I never did. Thank God. I had a lot of friends that did. And it would have been no big deal. And it would have been no big deal. But guess what? If I did, then I would know what that joint does for me. And then if I got depressed and someone next to me had one, you know what? Give me one. Hashem protected me that I never smoked cigarettes. But when you stop smoking cigarettes, there's a guy, one of my friends, eight years he stopped, and now he's smoking again. Eight years! And he stopped, and he mama stopped, and now he's smoking again. And he's like, big deal. He doesn't even feel bad about it. Why? Because the, no, the smoking road is in your neshama. It just has a big sign closed. To, to reopen that is, is very, very simple. I'll give you a hardcore example. Hardcore example. When I stopped gambling, so I used to have what's called markers. Didn't come with cash. Sign the paper, 10 grand, 20 grand, whatever it is, sign the paper. They put the chips in front of you. You didn't got to bring cash. That's it, you know. I was a big tzaddik. I tipped everyone really nice. I made a bracha on my chocolate and my soda. I was a tzaddik, you know. They called me the, 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 the good Jewish, you know, rabbi. I was a tzaddik. No problem, right? For sure, no problem. One day I decided I'm stopping. Way before 12 years ago. Stopping. It's not good for me. I don't need it. I was losing a lot of money at the time. So I went in and I said, I want to sign a paper that you're not allowed to give me markers anymore. So I ask you for a marker. They have to do that legally because if you tell them you want to stop and they don't let you and they don't help you, then you can sue them for all the money that you lose. And I knew that. So I went in and I said, listen, I can't control myself. I'm going in. I went, I'll never forget, I sat down with, the, with, the, with them, and I signed the paper. It's a whole contract, you realize what you're doing. I signed the paper, that they cannot give me a marker. I could cry, beg, lay on the floor, throw a tantrum, it don't matter. They are not allowed to give me a marker, and I signed that paper, and I said, I'm done, Baruch Hashem. Because when I ask them, they're going to tell me no. A few months later, right, I'm there with my friends just to watch, and I'm like, this is, we're in the zone here, guys. You know, it, it's, the guys are doing really good, and I was sitting there missing everything. So I didn't have any money on me, because I always used to markers. I went back and I said, how do you reverse that paper? <laughs> I'm serious. How do you reverse that paper? You reverse that paper, they give you another thing to sign, right? That you're reopening, and you're, you're forgetting about what you think you're stupid, that you're forgetting about what you signed, whatever it is, and you have to sign it in front of two witnesses, and the witnesses have to sign that you signed in front of them that you want to reopen it. Ten minutes later, my credit line was wide open. Have a nice day. It started all over. Had I never had a marker, had I never gone down there, I could have, could have stood on my head. They wouldn't have given me a marker. Because I, I already had it, because I once opened it, even though I closed it, 
it's much easier to open. So therefore, when you start a behavior, when you start a behavior, whether it's smoking joints or drinking or girls or, or the internet or whatever that behavior is, when you start that behavior, don't think for one second that it's not a big deal, it's just now. Because once you start that behavior, that behavior will come back to haunt you. And it's very hard to go past that road when you're depressed and all it says is closed. But the road is there, and you know what the joint does, you know what the girl does for you, and you know what the internet does, and you know what, that escape, it's very hard to say, no, I'm walking by that road. It's much easier not to have that road. So if you have that road, so you have to dominate Hashem, and you have to hope that He never puts you into a position where you're going to reach. You reach for the pills that you're used to. You have a headache, right? You don't go to, if I have a headache, I take two Tylenols. I don't call up a homopathic guy. Right? Tell me how to do it without Tylenol, put a, a washcloth with alcohol, stick your finger in some oil, and you know, man, I'm not trying to make fun of it, whatever, because I'm not, I'm, that's not how I was brought up. I was brought up, you have a headache, you have fever, you take two Tylenol. Now, I know some people, someone that I know very well, they never, as kids, ever took an antibiotic, never took an, an aspirin, everything is natural. So when he has a headache, he reaches for some roots and some bean sprouts, I don't know, whatever it is, but it works for him. I reach for the Tylenol because it's called a learned behavior. I'm used to that. So even if I know that Tylenol is not good for my liver, but that's how I was brought up. That's how I was brought up. That's what I'm used to. So I'm begging everyone in this room, whatever behaviors you already explored and you have, you're going to struggle with it. Hashem should help you because that road is there. But if you, the behaviors that you didn't go into, that you didn't experiment with, stay away. Don't open that road in your neshama, even if you can close it. Because once it's there, it's there. Yes, there is a tshuva, a real tshuva that a person can do, very deep, deep tshuva, where you can mamish erase the road, like it was never there. That's very hard. Very hard tshuva to get to that point where it's never there. That means for a gambler who won $100,000 in a night to actually feel disgusting about it and upset about it and a guy who smoked a joint to actually go back to that joint and feel disgusting to get to that level that's real tshuva that's that's crazy work to go back or to say hey that was good I, I understand I shouldn't do it anymore <clears throat> wow guys remember that trip we took you know like whoa that's tshuva but that's not a real tshuva real tshuva is to mamish to make it makes you throw up Right, and I've been doing tshuva for for that for twelve years, and I'm still not at that point. I'm not at the point to say that the night I was on, on a roll that it was disgusting. That's a real tshuva. Then the road's gone; it's not there anymore. But that's very, very hard, and a lot, a lot of work, and many, many years of work. So I'm just begging everybody, because what I see is just is just that road being reopened and reopened and reopened. Not to start with the pills. And not to start with the marijuana, and not to start with the drinking, and not to start with the girls. Because once you start with something like that, you have such, so much against you that you're gonna go fall back to that. So if you start already, you gotta build fences, and you gotta, you know, not only put up roadblocks, you gotta put up dynamite on there, and landmines, and, and concrete, those concrete things that they put in front to close the road, you know, different ways of closing a road. Right? You gotta mamish put like that a tank it can't get through. But once there's a road, there's a road. It's like, in the spiritual world, to explain to you very simply, a baby learns the whole Torah. And then they smack us under the nose, right? And we forget the whole Torah. Why? 
Why are you teaching it to me for me to forget? So don't teach me. Let me watch cartoons. I'm a little baby. I want to watch Elmo. You know? I want to watch Sesame Street. You're teaching me Taisvis? You're teaching me Gemara? What are you teaching me Gemara for? I mean, my mother, show me some good movies. Right? And the answer is that when you learn Torah in your mother's womb, you have roadmaps in your neshama. So that when you come out and you want to learn again, you are going over already, you're paving already a road that was made. And it's so much more easy to learn. I, I, I don't know how about, if a, if a ger, right? I don't know if a ger, when he gets his neshama, if he ever had that. And maybe it's something to talk to Gerim to see if they, if it's as easy for them to learn Torah as a person who was born, a, born a Jew, right? And he, and he learned the whole Torah. It's like an imprint. It's like an imprint. It's like, it's like on a piece of paper, not writing it, but you know, making an imprint in the paper and just follow the lines. I'll give you a perfect example. Perfect example here. Perfect example. Cause every, everything in, everything in the, everything in the, in the physical world is in the spiritual world. Check this out. Just came to me. Very simple. Simple, simple, simple. Look, here's a piece of paper, right? Never before anything done with it. I want to rip it in half. Not bad, huh? We're pretty scaggly. The line's not straight. If you look at the line, you'll see I didn't do a very good job. It's thin over here and it's thicker over here. Okay? This is making a new road. Now, check this out. Very simple physical world. You take it, and you do this, and you do this, and it's not ripped at all, right? Still not ripped, but we're making a line. And now, I'd ask you, is this a paper that's ripped? You'd say no. And if I had more time and I did it really well, I didn't do it so well, but since I did it, there's no comparison. Okay. Check it out, guys. See? This is without the line in front first. And this is, I didn't cut it with a knife. I didn't cut it with a scissor. I didn't cut it with a knife. Look at the difference between how this got ripped and how this got ripped. Okay? So, it's much easier, right, in the good side, if you learned the whole Torah in your mother's womb and it got erased, but it's there, it's much easier to, to do this. If it was never taught to you, then it ends up like this. So, an Aveira... Right? Once you do it, it's this piece of paper. It's so much easier to go back to it. It, it, it rips perfectly, smoothly, no problem. If you never did it, it rips you to pieces to do that Avera. You ripped all over the place. It's very hard to do that Avera. But once you make the line, it's very easy to do that Avera. So therefore, never say that I'm only doing something once. It's not going to affect me. It's going to affect you very deep because it's going to make a road in your neshama. And that road you may go back to, put into a situation, under pressure, or whatever the situation is, you may go back to. And, and it's in anything. A guy, Shalom, was with a woman, right, before he got married. He was with a woman. And now he gets married. He says, ah, big deal, I was with a woman. I love my wife. Right? But the minute he has a fight, or two fights, or three fights, and they're not talking to each other anymore, and she's not going near him for two months, and their mom is angry, where's he going? He's going to go find himself a woman. Because he's been there before. The guy who never, ever was with another woman, chas v'shalom, crazy? He's going to work it out with his wife. 
Because he, he doesn't know what it means to go to another woman. So that map, that, that line in his map doesn't exist. There's no such road, other woman. Because in my life, there was never another woman. But the minute guy goes to another woman, then he's going to another woman, and another woman, and if he has a fight, and if she's pregnant, and he can't be with her for five months, he's going crazy, he's going to this, to this, this is what I deal with all the time. But the guy who was never with anyone else, all of a sudden he's going to make a road, a new road? He just got married, he's going to make a new road? And start running around with other women? No. No, he won't. So don't think for a second that new behavior is not going to affect you even if you do it one time. You're teaching your neshama that there's a road there, even if it's closed, it's very easy to move the cones. I did it the other day. I said, do not enter, whatever it was, and I just do so much traffic, I figured I'll try, and I moved them. And I came to the middle of the road, it was in, it was in actually it was in Lakewood, and the guy said, hey, didn't you see the cones? I said, yeah, but I didn't see you, no. I said, <laughs> I, said I saw the cones, I took out my PBA card, it said rabbi on it, whatever, and I said, I'm a rabbi, and I, and I have to get to whatever it is, and he said, okay, and on the other side of the road where I came out, they moved the cones, two seconds. If there was no road there, I couldn't have gone there. But there was a road there that said closed. It was very easy to move the cones. I'm telling you a lesson in life, boys. This is a, this has nothing to do with Pesach. It does a little bit. It does have a little to do with Pesach. Because we were Avadim. And that's in our roadmap. But it's a whole different subject. But it also has to do with good things, guys. It has to do with good things. So many, you'll see so many good Jews, good people, that when they're under pressure... The first place to go is to Davin. The first place to go under pressure is to Davin, to Hillim. Why? Because when they were younger, they went, when, when they used to go with their father, they used to see their father under pressure, the first place they went to go Davin. So they created a road in their mind, a road in their neshama on the good side, that if something goes wrong, and that road's open. You didn't even close that road. That road's open and even. I'll tell you something. And I tell this to parents. Make your kids go to Davin to Minyan and make them sit next to you. Don't let them go to other shuls. They should sit next to you and they should Davin. Why? Because if they go off the derech later, which means that they took all their good roads and closed them, I don't want to Davin anymore. I don't want to put Tzulun on anymore. I don't want to keep Shabbos anymore. But if that kid was brought up by a parent who sat with him on Shabbos and told him stories and sang mirrors and sat with him by davening and sat with him to me, even though now he's a kid at risk and he's fighting and he's rebelling and I don't believe and I know that, but that kid will come back so much faster. Because when he decides to come back, there's a road. It says, Tfilin, closed. Uh-huh. Shabbos, closed. Uh-huh. Davening, closed. Learning, closed. It's there. But if you don't teach your kid to daven and to learn and to be close to Hashem, when he decides to come back, there's nowhere to go. And everybody decides to come back. You should know that. There's no one in the world that doesn't decide for a moment, I think I'm going to come back. And then something happens that they don't. But everyone has that machshav. Every neshama has that machshav. No matter how much you're abused by the system or whatever happened to you, there's always the moment where I'd like to change. And then the moment's gone. Yitzhara takes the moment and he grabs it away. But if that guy grabs that moment and in his soul there are all kinds of roadmaps of zmiras on Shabbos and smiles on Shabbos and candy on Shabbos and tefillin when he was by mitzvah that they made a big deal about all these things, then when he comes to the road and the Yitzhara says, sorry, learning is closed. But you have that road. So what you need to do is to move the Yitzhar aside. I remember when I learned Gemara, ah, I want to start again. But if you never learned Gemara, and you never daven, you never kept Shabbos, then there's no road. Then you have to start building a new road. To build a new road is very hard. 
So if you have that already, it's much easier to come back. There's no question. I, I'm doing this for 30 years. The kid that comes back is the kid that had it once upon a time. Everyone tells me, no, it's just the opposite. A rabbi said to me, it's much easier to be, to, to, to be Makarev, a person who knew nothing about Judaism. And you can make about truth out of him. Why? Because you tell him how good it is, how good it tastes, so he comes to taste it. He said, but the guy who, who had a Shabbos and tasted it now says, I don't like it, much harder. It makes sense. If I tell someone who never drank Coca-Cola, hey, here's my Mont Blanc guy, right? This is great. you got to taste this. He never drank it before. He's like, Rebbe, really? Yeah. Okay, he'll take a cup. But if before the shir I gave him a cup, and he's, and he's like, ugh, right? I don't like it. How am I selling this to him? How am I selling this to him? He's not going to take a drink of this because he tasted already. So the Rebbe said to me, I don't know how you work with guys who come from from families that went off the derech. They know what Shabbos is. They know what Tillin is. They know what God is. They know what Torah is. And they don't want it. So how are you going to resell it to them? I'm selling something new. Something new. These people are coming from, from Arizona, from, from who knows where. They don't know nothing. So they want to learn. But these guys, how do you do it, Rabbi Wallstein? And I told them this answer. I said, every single guy wants a chance to come back. You have to meet him at that moment. But he has a road. I say, my guy's ahead of your guy. Your guy's going to sit and struggle for eight years to learn a piece of Gemara. My guy, if he comes back, he already made the lines in the paper. If he comes back, he's going to steig in, in two months. He's going to be ahead of all your guys. And it's true. There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to talk about. So a learned behavior, a behavior that you do positive, and, it, and it's not closed the road, is a beautiful, is a beautiful road in, in, in your neshama. And the Yitzhahara tries to tell you, what road? You're not believe you did one Avera, so you're doing one thing wrong. No, you do tshuva. And the answer is, you're never going to be the same person for the rest of your life. I am never, ever going to be the same person. I now, if I have to go to California, I will not land in Vegas. Now, there's a hundred guys, that, thousand guys that I know that, are you out of your mind? If you get out of the plane, go to the bathroom, and then make the connecting plane. I'm like, no. I got a road that was built in my neshama for, what I, for going to Vegas. I'm not going to go to Vegas anymore. I'm putting up another roadblock and another roadblock. My life will never be the same. So I have to know that. So you have to know that your life will never be the same. It will be a struggle. And if Chas Shalom, you come to a point where you have nowhere to turn, you will turn to your learned behavior. And mainly your learned behavior as a young person. That's when the Yitzhar wants to start. Because if he gets a 16-year-old guy to do this, then the 16-year-old guy is stuck for the rest of his life. So let's say, so, you, so it's over? It's not over. But you have to know that there's a road in your system that you've got to stay away from. And that's why Hashem makes lines on your hands. Because the lines on your hands are called the map of your life. That's what they call it. It's the map of your life. So you should know that everything you do causes a little scratch in the, in the finger, a little scratch in the hand, a little scratch on the paper, so that the paper rips very easily. Very easily. You can fall back to it very easily. Okay, I have no idea why I'm talking about this tonight. I don't know. But someone here knows. Because I wouldn't be talking about it unless someone needed to hear it. That person might be me. But someone here knows. Because there's really nothing to do with Pesach. It does really. But I'm not going to connect it tonight. Maybe next week. Because we have learned behaviors in Mitzrayim. In our souls. We were Avadim in Mitzrayim. And that's why we celebrate Pesach on the level that we do. Because we have Cheres. 
Hashem took away those roads. Because slave mentality, a slave mentality, I'm not going to get into it, but you know what I'm talking about. The slave mentality stays a slave mentality. It's very hard to become free of that culture when you come from slavery. The Jewish nation, right, is not subservient to anyone. And slavery is being subservient. We are not subservient. We are Baruch Hashem. We are, we are the highest in, in Nobel Prizes, in, 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 in accomplishments in the world, in building, in technology, Eretz Yisrael's technology and computers. It's amazing. In business, in making money, in banking money, right? That's not... So we see that... And that's really why we're saying that we celebrate Pesach because Lamaisa, we were all those years in Mitzrayim, and that mentality, that DNA, those roadmaps of being a slave mentality, right, of being a slave to your Yetzirah, and a slave to your job, and a slave to the community, and a slave to, to the country that you live in, is not a Jewish thing at all. We're very free mind. We're very, we're very free in, in, as a nation. We don't do our various like that. But we, we, we have, we're very growth. We're, like, we're into growth. So, even though we have this in our DNA that Hashem put us in Mitzrayim for that long, we, did, we, we, we came out with cheris. We came out with freedom, which is a big miracle, which is a crazy miracle, because learned behaviors don't change. Learned behaviors don't change. But listen, I'll give you a proof to what I'm saying tonight is true. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that says you're not allowed to go back to Mitzrayim. Why? Why can't I go back to Mitzrayim? Why can't I move back to Mitzrayim? It was the whole thing with the Rambam, that he went to Mitzrayim, whatever, because he had to save the sultan. You're not allowed to live in Mitzrayim. It's in Abbey, it's a lot in the Torah. Now I go back to Mitzrayim. What are you worried about? I want to go to Egypt, stand by the, you know, by the Suez Canal, by the water. I want to go on vacation. You're not allowed to go on vacation in Mitzrayim. You're not allowed to go back to Mitzrayim. Why aren't you allowed to go back to Mitzrayim? Because there's a roadmap, there's a line in the Jewish nation's soul that says Mitzrayim closed. But if you go back to Mitzrayim, you might just open that door again. And we might fall all the way back. So the Torah tells us what we need to learn is that, that you'll learn behavior of being in Mitzrayim. And what did we say when we came out of Mitzrayim? We said, why did you take us out of here? This is not much a proof to my whole schmooze tonight. Why did you, we said to Moshevenu, why did you take us out of Mitzrayim to take us into the Midbar to die? In Mitzrayim I had watermelon and garlic. Sugar, you're a slave. You're working 28 hours a day. What are you talking about? But I got to learn behavior. I became a slave. They fed me watermelon. They fed me garlic, right? And I was happy. How could you say that? Hashem's telling you, I'm taking you there to Israel. I'm giving you the Torah. What are you, nuts? And the answer is, it's not nuts. It's called learned behavior. There was a road in every Jew that came out of Mitzrayim, and that road was Mitzrayim. As bad as it was, it was a learned behavior. It's something that we experienced. And therefore, you could come out of Mitzrayim, out of this experience, and the minute, they all went out. But the minute, and everything was great. But the minute it was panic time, the minute it was panic time, the minute there was no meat, and there was no water, what did they do? They went back to the road that was closed. Mitzrayim was closed. We left it. What did they say? Open the door. We want to open the, open the road. We want to go back. Because all we remember is that marijuana. All I remember is that watermelon. It was a hot day, and I was working, and they gave me watermelon. So, I want watermelon. Sugar, you were a slave. Wake up. Hello? No, but I want watermelon. I want my pill. 
I want my, my drugs. I want watermelon. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, are you crazy? You want watermelon? And the answer is yes, because that's all I knew. I was going to try him. I worked and gave me watermelon. Now I'm in trouble. Until now, they didn't complain. Everything was great. Now I'm in trouble. 80% relapse. I'm going back to the watermelon. So your behavior as teenagers and your behavior as young guys, you are creating your roadmap for life. And if you're going to open up these roads, you're going to go back to those roads. Hashem should help you. That you're able to walk by, but you're going to go back to those roads. So you got to be very careful at this age not to make any more new roads. Whatever's there is there. But don't create any more. Okay. It's brought down in a safer called Avoidas Yisrael from the Magid, from the Magid, Mikoshnitz, that if on Shabbos Haggadol you say the following three stories, which I'm going to tell you very short stories, but if you repeat them on Shabbos Haggadol to another person, he's maftiach, skula, haftacha, that the rest of your year will be absolutely an amazing year of amazing stories that are going to happen to you. The school to say these three stories, not this week, next Shabbos. Because this week is not Shabbos Agadol, even though they're doing Shabbos Agadol drushes this week, because next week's a whole Erev Pesach thing, but next week, to say these three stories, remember to say it, because whatever the magnet, the Kajnit said, is, is, is Kaddish Kedoshim, is Holy of Holies. So he says, these are the three stories you should, you should say over. He says, in the time of the Noyim Elimelech, there was a Jew, and he needed to make money for Pesach. What did he do? He used to sell whiskey to the Goyim. And he didn't have, he used to have, well, like a tax-free thing stamp on his stuff. So that he had to pay ta- heavy, heavy taxes on liquor. And he didn't have those stamps. Anyway, he used to smuggle, he was a smuggler. And he used to smuggle the, the, this whiskey to the Goyim, and that's how he made his living. Anyway, it was a few weeks before Pesach, and he was taking his load across the border to sell it to the Goyim, and he got chopped, he got caught. And they said, what do you got here? And he said, vodka. And they said, let's see the stamp, the tax stamp. He said, I don't got one. He said, well, then we have to take away all your stuff. And they took away all his whiskey, all his, all his Smirnoff, all his vodka, all his stuff, gone. He didn't have a penny. He didn't have a penny. He went to the Noyim Elimelech, and he told the Noyim Elimelech what happened. He says, I'm not going to have matzah for Pesach. I'm not going to have food for Pesach. I was crossing the border. They caught me without the stamp. And then Malmelech looks at him and says, you have big mazel. You thought the guy you bought it from, you thought that it was vodka. He beat you. He sold you water. Go back and tell the border guards who took it away from you that it's not vodka, but it's water. And they're not going to believe you. Tell them to open all the bottles and taste them. He says, I can't believe that guy. I'm buying vodka from him all these years. I can't believe he did this to me. This is crazy. He goes back. He says to them, listen, all the bottles are water. They're not vodka. He says, well, you think we're stupid? He says, no, taste it. They start opening the bottles, one after another. It's water. And they give him back the whole thing, and they start laughing. Stupid Jew. This guy ripped you off so big. He sold you cases of water. And the guy was, Sebrachan, like, what did the the Rebbe help me? Okay, so they they took away water. Now they gave me back my water. What am I going to do with water? Those days, he didn't sell water. He took him out of a well. It was worthless. So he went back to the Noemeli Melech. And he said to the Noem Elimelech, I don't understand. This didn't help me at all. I, I, so now I don't have, I have water. He says, here, go taste it. So he went and he tasted it. And it was vodka. So it was a very famous, my face, miracle that the Noem Elimelech did. 
for this Jew for Pesach, that if vodka tasted like water, and in the end it was really vodka, he sold it, he had money, and he lived happily ever after. Story number one. Story number two. Story number two, so in those days you used to have what's called a parrot. So parrot was like the the guy who owned the, the, the what were they called? Uh, more than a landlord. Uh, there's a certain word for it. In the village, he owned the village, whatever it was. Anyway, so so um, this this um, this Paritz, um had this had this Jew, and he wanted he wanted this Jew to work very hard for him, and he wasn't going to he was going to pay him very very little. And the Jew said, "No, I'm not I'm not working for you for so little. You you're using me like a slave. We we did our time in Mitzrayim. I'm not doing this anymore." So he went home. So the Paritz said to him, "Yeah, well, I know Passover is coming, and you don't have food, you don't have money, and and you're going to have relatives, and you're, you're going to look like a fool." You better come work for me, and I'm going. And too bad I'm not paying you a lot, but at least I'll pay you enough that you can buy some food for Passover. He says, "No, just because you know it's Passover, you want to abuse me. I'm not working for you." So Paris said, "Okay, no problem." The Jew said, "Listen to me." Before he left, he said, "You don't. You're not the one who supports me. The one who supports me is God." If God wants me to have money, the Paris said, "Listen, what are you stupid? I support the whole village." If I don't give you a job and I don't pay you, you're not going to have any food. And the Jew turned around and said, we'll see who supports me. You are God. Okay. This Paritz, I read this story. I remember the story before the person told me. He had a monkey. It's a famous story. He had a monkey. And so a few weeks before Pesach, he went downstairs to his treasury. And his monkey followed him. And he was a very greedy man. And he used to take his gold Right and his jewelry and all the little you know jewels and whatever it is, and he used to clean them like once every three months. So the monkey was sitting on the table. He took his gold and you know, he'd go <sighs> like this and cleaning it. And the monkey, the monkey is a monkey, right? So he thought that the pirate was taking the stuff out of his mouth and and cleaning it. He didn't know where the, the stuff was coming from. Anyway, he cleans all his stuff. He goes back up to his house. The monkey stays in the room. Says that's very cool. If he could do it, I could do it. And he starts taking the jewelry and popping it into his mouth. Right? He starts eating it because he thought that the parts was taken out of his mouth. So he's putting it in his mouth. Of course, how long can a monkey live eating jewelry, right? So within an hour or two of eating all this jewelry, he was dead. Dead as a stone. Okay. A week later, the monkey's missing, right? A week later, the parts goes down. Again, he liked, he was greedy. He liked to see his stuff. He comes in, there's such a smell, a terrible stench. And he looks around the room and he sees that the monkey is laying there. It's already you know, falling apart, whatever it is, and smelly and disgusting. He says to his people, let's, te- let's teach the Jew a good lesson. He, want- he needs something to eat for Passover because he's not working for me? We'll throw him the monkey into his yard, let him eat that. So they throw the monkey into the yard and they leave. Of course, the monkey's already falling apart, throws it into the yard, the belly is wide open, and all these jewels are, are laying on the floor. The Jewish guy doesn't know where it comes from because there was no one there. He turns to Shemayim, he says, Shemayim sent me a monkey full of jewels, right? <laughs> this is amazing. What a miracle. What a fantastic miracle. Not knowing, of course, that the other guy threw it in there. And he sells them. And, of course, he has a lot of money now. He buys silver. He's got chicken and food. And uh, no, comes Pesach night. And the poet tells his, his boys, come, let's see. You want to see a Jew that has nothing to eat? I'll show you a Jew. I didn't give him a job because he wanted a lot of money. Comes to the house. He sees, looks in the window. He sees this Jewish guy with silver and every amount of steak, and matzahs, and wine, and there's 40 people eating there, the whole village is eating there. He comes walking in, he says, what, where, who? I didn't give you a job. He turns to me, he says, I told you. 
that money doesn't come from people, money comes from God. I got to tell you the crazy story. He says, I walk out in the morning, and there's a monkey on my lawn. And its stomach is open, and there's jewels all over inside its stomach. And the parts who knew what he did, says to the Jew, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you what happened, but your God is a true God. Second story. Third story that he brings down was like this. There was a, a, a king. These are all stories from the Magen Mikoshnitz. There was a king, and he had a, a, a ring that he loved very much, a signet ring. And he lost it. He lost it. So he said he's willing to pay anyone who's going to look for it and find it $10,000 up front. Okay? So a Jewish guy shows up. He says, I'll take $10,000 up front. No problem. And I'll look for it. I'll find it. For sure, I'll find it. So he takes the $10,000. At the same time, there was an idol worshiper. We'll use that word. Okay? There was an idol worshiper who was very jealous of this Jew and said, there's no way that this Jew is looking for the king's thing. He took the $10,000 and he's going to beat the king. Right? And he starts telling the king, I know this guy. He's not looking for your thing. He's here to, to you know, to beat you. Now this guy, his name was Dino. Diano. Diano. I guess it was a Spanish, whatever. His name was Diano. And Diano kept telling the king, you go check on the Jew. You'll see he took the $10,000. He's trying to beat you. And... And if someone does that to a king, he's punishable by death. Okay? This is a cousin of It's not my story. So, they decide they're going to go Pesach night. The, the Aino knew that the Jews sit Pesach night, right? And he knew they're going to be sitting around the table with all their families, eating and drinking, and up a whole night. He's going to show the king, you think he took $10,000 and he's looking for your diamond. He took you $10,000, he bought a great meal, he invited his whole family, and they're going to sit all night and make fun of you. King said, I, I don't believe that, i got to see this. They come to the house, they, they stand by the window, and they see, they're washing, I mean, they're, they're sitting there, and they're making kiddush, there's a big silver thing in the middle, the whole family's there, everybody's dressed, and this Diano is saying to the king, you see, I told you these Jews are a bunch of thieves. He's not looking for your diamond. He took your money. He invited the whole family to a huge party. The king says, let's just, let's hear what they're saying. So the father, the guy who with the $10,000, who took the $10,000, the father of the whole family, says to everyone, I want each one of you to say one Dayenu, right? And then we'll sing Dayenu at the end. So they start. And the whole family screams, Dayenu! And the whole family screams, Dayenu! And the king says to this Spanish guy, what, what are they saying? I don't understand. He goes, I don't, stand, I don't understand either. And then, at the end, the whole family starts screaming together, Die, I know! Die, die, I know! So one of the king's guards says, I don't know exactly what they were saying, but it sounded like to me that he was asking everybody in the house... Who stole the king's ring? <laughs> and each guy in the house was screaming, Dayeno! So the king turned to the, to the, to the idol worshiper and said, How do they know that you took my ring? He says, I don't know, but I admit it. Magi <laughs> Mikoshnitz. And of course, he was arrested and put in prison for the rest of his life, and Hitaka had the ring. Now, 
Now, these three stories are not for children. There's a very, very deep, deep meaning behind the three stories. Now, this is written, go, go to the farm store, ask for the Sefer, Avoidas Yisrael, from the Magin Mikoshnitz, and you will see that he writes all three stories and says that any Jew that says these three stories on Shabbos Haggadol will have the most amazing things happen to him that year. Go get the Sefer and check it out if you don't believe me. So I know that the three stories are not what they sound like. And I hope, Mitzvah Hashem, in the next week, before I give next week's shir, to buy the Sefer and to try to get an understanding of what these stories, what they really mean. Because they must mean something unbelievable. Okay. I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll tell you that story. I actually did not give you the shir that I prepared tonight at all. My shir that I prepared tonight, I'll give you Mitzvah next week, which is the blood and the matzah and what... what building and making and creating the human body, the Adam, for Pesach night, to get engaged, the Kala, to the Chasan, and how we build the human body, spiritual body, through the Haggadah, which is an amazing shear. For whatever reason, I didn't get to it. But I want to end with this story. Maybe you should say, everyone I'm telling you, you have to say over this story, Pesach night by the Seder. This story you're all going to say over because it's, ah, it's, okay. Part of our Seder is the Mara, right? The bitter Mara. Where do you put that? Where do you put the Mara on the Seder plate? Smack in the middle. Smack in the middle. Tonight we're sitting like kings. It's a happy night. We got out of Mitzrayim. I would think you put the Mara, eh, you know, where the salt water is. Like, you know, some people, they even put the salt water off the car. It's down on the bottom. You would hide the Mara. The Mara sits in the middle of the whole Seder night. And of course, the reason is because what brings you closer to Hashem than Mara? When a person goes through bad things in their life, that makes you connected to Hashem. You go through bad things, you come right to Hashem. When you're doing good, when you have a great deal, it's because I'm smart. When you have a bad deal, it's God's fault. You understand? That's the way. It's always like that. So in the Mara, which we'll talk about, and in the Charoses, the word Charoses itself, right, where the Mara gets dipped into the Charoses, the Mara represents actually the Malchamavas. The Mara represents the Yetzirah. If you look in, in the Mepharshim, where it says Hashem saw that, that His creation was Kitov Ma'od, right? It says Tov is the Yetzir is the, Tov in the world. Ma'od is, is, that He saw it was very good. Ma'od is the Malcham Avos. The Ma'od is the Malcham Avos. Ma'od is the Satan. The Ma'od is the, is, the, is, the, is the Marar. Because those things are the things that make us sort of the Baruch Haman type of thing. Those things are the things that bring us closer to Hashem. Knowing that there's a day that you're going to die. If you were to die... Right? You never do tshuva. Knowing that the day you're going to die, the day that you're going to have to stand in front of Hashem, that's what makes you do tshuva. So the marar, right, gets dipped into the charosis. Why? Because charosis, if you take the word apart, right? So if you take the rus, right? Rus, which is resh, vav, tov, that's in charosis. What's left? The ches and charosis. Samach. The Ches and the Samach, right. Those are the two letters that are left in Charosas, which equals 68. Right? That's equals 68. Rus and 68 are what Charosas is about. Rus we'll talk about next week. Rus was the sweetness of finding Hashem. She became a Ger. She found Hashem. She said, your, your God is my God. Your life is my life. That's the sweetness in the Charosas that aren't, that we got married to Hashem on the night of Pesach. But, but the other two letters, the Ches and the Samach, equals 68. Chaim, life equals 68. Ches Yud Yud Mem. So in the Charoses is the Chaim. The Chaim and the Mavas put together. That's what life's all about, being born dying. 
So you take the Mara, which is Mavas, and you put in the Charosis, which is Chaim, which is a very deep whole speech, which, which I want to get, which I want to get into next week. But what we learn from the whole thing is that, that bitterness, that pain, that pain brings you to sweetness. Now, you gotta hear this story. Pesach, now we're very happy. Yeah, the hotel. In this island, and that island, in Florida, and Puerto Rico, and Phoenix, Arizona, Ayve, you open up the Jewish press, there's 25 pages of hotels where you should go. But in the old days, not old days, forget old days, 200 years ago, Pesach was the scariest time for any Jew to be alive. Because the idol worshippers used to take children, non-Jewish children, and slaughter them, take the blood, right, and say that the Jews used the blood to bake matzahs. And then the Cossacks and all these Chavah would go in, and they would wipe out Jewish towns. And that's why the morale created the Gaelum to run around. And it's the famous story with the morale. He had a dream, and he saw them take the blood and put it in the Arna Kodesh, and they went and they switched it. And that's why he created the Gaelum. Different story, different time. Okay? But in one of these blood libels, now, they ask a question. This is all very deep stuff. You gotta wake up. Whoever's sleeping, you gotta wake up for the last 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes. Wake up for 10 minutes. That's it. We're done. Why blood libels on Pesach? Why not blood libels on Shavuos? Why not blood libels on Sukkot? Why not blood libels on Hanukkah or Purim? Why Pesach? Why Pesach? You ready for this? Pesach is a kapara for Yosef. What happened by Yosef? Let's get to Yosef. This is amazing. This is mamish amazing. Listen carefully. You ready? First of all, after they sold Yosef, what did they do? They sat down to eat bread. Pesach, he can't eat bread. You ready? This is, this is a, like unbelievable. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. So Pesach, he can't eat bread because the first thing the brothers did after they sold Yosef, they ate bread. So Pesach Lechem is out. What else did they do? They went ahead and they went to their father and they did the following. They took the Ksenes, the jacket of Yosef, the Ksenes Pasen. And they shechted a Seir Izim, an animal. What is a Seir Izim? Not a lamb, a goat. A goat. Okay? And they dipped the Ksenes Pasen in blood. Look what we found. Is this your sons or not? He said, Oi, a wild animal ate my child. Yosef was ripped apart. So what did they do? What did they do? They took blood of an animal and they made it look like blood of a human. So what do we have to do on Pesach? So, so the blood of a human, even though it wasn't true, they were selling to their father that it was Yosef's blood. That it was a human's blood that was used. That was dead. That was killed. So every Pesach, the Satan says, the Jews themselves made up a story. They made an Alilas Dam. They made up a story that it was human blood when it wasn't. So the Goyim have a right to make up a story that matzahs and wine used on Pesach are from human blood, even though it's not. That's the whole thing, why the Alilas Dam is on Pesach. So we shech the carbon Pesach. 
the same animal we shecht al carbon pesach to be machaper on the carb on the animal that they shechted to fool their father that was human blood. We shecht the carbon pesach to forgive us, and we give that and we use that blood as they used on the mashkoif for the real thing, but further. And therefore, we have to dip on Pesach night. Because we have to do a tshuva for the dipping that they did when it says, by Yitzbeluas They dipped the Kesainas in the blood, therefore, we have to dip the Mara in the Charoises. And we have to dip the Kapas in the salt water. Why are there two dippings? There are two dippings to remind us of the two dippings. One dip to save the other dip. The dipping in Mitzrayim of the blood of the animal, not the human, but the animal on the mashkov, was the kapara on the dipping of the blood that they did for Yosef. Therefore, we have to remember both that night. So we dip more in charoses, that's one dipping, that's the, that's the selling of the jacket, and we dip the, the, the kapas in the salt water, that's the reminder of the dipping that they did to do tshuva on what Yosef did. And I went to somebody today, a friend of mine, his name is Sender Ashkenazi, he works down at the end of my office. And his father collected millions of dollars and last week gave out in Eretz Yisrael 60,000 pairs of shoes. And they had it. You could even watch it while it was happening. They had tents and they checked out everybody and they came with their eight children. Each child got a Shabbos sticker pair of shoes and a weekday pair of shoes. 60,000 pairs of shoes. So I went to him today and I said, tell me, why shoes? Why didn't you take the three million dollars like everybody else and give Kimcha the Pischa and give Matzah? People are starving. No, so wear your old shoes. He said, I don't know, we took it on years ago to, you know, to help Israeli children, you know, who don't have shoes. I said, I'll tell you why you did it. Because Chazal say that when they sold Yosef, what did they get for Yosef? They didn't want to take money. Because they didn't want to trade for money. You sold your brother. So they said, give us shoes. <coughs> Instead of Yosef, they sold him for shoes. I think Rashi says it. That they sold him for shoes. So I said to him, you're the kapara on the shoes for, for the mechiras Yosef. Your 60,000 shoes every year that you give these kids, that's the kapara. Specifically, why do you do it on Pesach? You don't even know why. Because Pesach is a, is a tshuva on the selling of Yosef. He said, I got to tell my father, whatever. He was like, wow. That's crazy. I'm like, yeah, so that's not my Dvatayra. Okay. So that's Pesach. There's so much going on. I say that, forget about it. And Mitzvah Shem, I hope next, next week we'll have time to, you know, I won't go off the subject. So I want to end with this story. You got to hear the story. What? The jail story. That's it. No, the... Right, right. Saying very good. The dipping is the road that we opened by selling Yosef and, and changing the road, erasing the road and making a new road, a different dipping. Okay, listen carefully. You got to hear the story. Anyway, so how do you, so so in the times of this blood libels, the Polish government. This is a true story, by the way. It's amazing. Hashem is. Mwah. You got to hear this. The Polish government arrested two Jews for this blood libel business that they're using blood, to, and they put them in a jail, a teeny little jail, like a small jail, full of non-Jewish people. They come into this jail. They throw them into the jail, and. One of the brothers starts laying on the floor and he starts crying, hysterically crying. His brother, there were two brothers, his brother walks up to him and says, Yankel, this is what Hashem wanted. We don't understand why, 
But any pain a person has in his life, you have to be makabal yusurim ba'ava. You have to accept the pain that you go through in life with love. So stop crying. It's not right. That's not the way you serve Hashem. If He put us in this jail for life, that's who we are. And we have to accept it. So he turned to his brother and he says, says, Chaim, Yanko, whatever. He says, I'm not crying because I'm scared to be in jail for the rest of my life. He says, do you see what's in the corner? You see that pail that everybody keeps going to make in? Right? There's zevel in the pail. There's dew, there's dew in that pail. There's zevel. And the halacha is that if you're within eight feet, or if you smell it even, right, you're not allowed to daven. Do you realize, my brother, that for the rest of our lives, we're never going to be able to daven shachris? Mincha, mayriv, kriyashmat, elim, learn. We're stuck in an eight by eight. That pail is always here. It stinks. Do you realize what, we, what we're sentenced to? That we can never say a Hebrew word? I can't tell you it's my Torah. I can't say to him, I can't daven. I can't do anything. And you want me to stop crying? And his brother turned to him and said, no, I want you to stop crying. And we should start dancing. So are you crazy? Why should we not start dancing? And he said, because there's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. Is there a garbage around here? Any small garbage there? No? Okay. There's a halacha. Is there a garbage? Give me a, give me a garbage from the other room. There's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. There's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. That if you're in a room within eight feet of zevel, of this stuff, you're not allowed to daven. He said, we never would have been able to be mekayim. Oh, thank you very much. We never... It's just a prop, thank you. We never were able to be Mekayim, this halacha, that if you're in a room and there's uh, Zevel, right, that you're not allowed to daven because wherever we were, if there was Zevel, a bathroom, so we walked out of the room. Now we're stuck here for the rest of our lives, which means every minute we're getting a mitzvah because we're not davening in a room that has Zevel. We are so lucky. Who else has that mitzvah? Nobody in the world. Everyone else can walk out. Everyone goes, you're right. You're right. And he starts to dance. The two of them start to dance. You're going to have to move the camera. The two of them start to dance in the middle. You have to picture this, boys. You have to picture this. Two guys in the middle of a prison, right? They're dancing. The guy, are all sitting there. And they're dancing. Baruch Hashem. We can't daven. We can't say Tehillim. We can't say Halacha. And they pick up the, he picks up the pail. The guy that was crying, Right? And he starts dancing with it. <laughs> Hashem, we can't daven. We can't do anything. As long as this is in the room. And he's dancing and he's laughing and he's swinging and he's dancing with it. And he's in heaven. He's in heaven. And the Goyim see these two guys sentenced for life in the middle of a room dancing with a pail of... Uh, right? <laughs> and they say to themselves... The Jews are crazy. <laughs> they, they serve their God with Zevel. Hap- with manure. Where there happens to be Baal Pa'ar, there's, in the Torah, there was an Abay Dezar, that's how they served. But, so they said, okay, if they're dancing, let's dance with them. So all the game got up, if you can picture this, in this little jail cell, and everyone's dancing around the two guys, like, with, mom's like a safer Torah. They're dancing with this pot of Zevel, back and forth, right? Everyone's dancing around. It's Simcha's Tyra in the jail, except it's not Simcha's Tyra, it's Simcha's Toilet, right? And they're dancing. Simcha's Toilet, Simcha's Toilet, you know, they're dancing. And the guy, we're all dancing and cheering. Can anyone imagine such a picture? Unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Power of a Jew to handle pain. The jail guard standing outside, he looks inside the window, and he sees these two Jews dancing. Everybody's dancing. And this guy's a Polish anti-Semite, and he opens the door. And the guy that's next to me says, what's going on in here? This is life sentence. What's going on in here? He says, these Jews are crazy. You know what they're doing? He says, they serve their God, right, with this, with this pail. And the more we make in the pail, the happier they are. <laughs> so the guard says, I'll teach them a lesson. And he, takes the, he says to the Jew, bring me that pail right now. And he brings in the pail, and he takes it out, and he empties it all outside. And he washes it to make sure that there's not one drop that the Jews should have to be able to serve their God. Mamish cleans it out, spotless. Walks back into the room. The pail is spotless. He says, hey, look, it even smells good. You can't serve your God because there's nothing in this pail. And he turns to Obergayim and he says, anyone who goes to the bathroom in that pail, if you don't immediately bring it to me at the door, I will... I will have you killed. <laughs> and he puts the pail down. Listen carefully, boys. You should remember this for life. And he puts the clean pail down in the room. And the two boys, the two brothers, look at each other. And together say, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, Look at our God. If you celebrate in pain, then Hashem will allow you to celebrate and tefillah. If you want, if you celebrate the things that you can't do because you're a Jew, then you'll be able to celebrate the things that you can do. And from that day on until they got out of jail, there was no cleaner toilet or pail in the whole world than that pail because the goyim in that room, if they had to go to the bathroom, they went mamish by the door and the minute they said, take it out right now, it has to be clean right now. Do you hear what a Jew is? Do you hear what a Jew is? That a Jew is willing to dance with Zevel for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If that's the mitzvah, then that's the mitzvah. Never judge a Jew till you look twice. Never judge a Jew till you really know. And since you can never know, never judge a Jew. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this chus of those two, may he bring Mashiach, Bimheri B'yamein Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.